Pray with me. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, you who are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. I have a confession to make. I am directionally challenged, but I thank God for my GPS. Even when I know the way, it's comforting to hear her voice. It's just that now I sometimes have two women in the front seat telling me where to go. (laughs) There are times when I make a wrong turn, and then without hostility, but in a firm voice, with just a hint of frustration, she announces recalculating. But my, my GPS comforts me because it has a button labeled home. All I have to do is push that button, and she directs me back home where I am loved. Now, coming home isn't always a comforting thought. When I was seven years old, living with my parents on the new campus of Evangel College in Springfield, Missouri, I liked to play in houses that were in the process of being torn down. Houses in which, uh, for which I was given the instructions, do not go there, because I might step on a nail or fall through a disassembled floor. So one day, I had snuck over to one of the houses, and I was playing on the second disassembled floor, and I heard my mother call me home, knowing full well my current location. <laughs> And I knew that invitation to come home meant coming home to judgment from a mother who loved me and was concerned that I should flourish well beyond my seventh year of life. (laughs) Well, that's the way it is with home. It's a place of comfort because it's where you're loved. And it's a place of of judgment because that is where you're loved. That's precisely the situation that Zechariah finds himself in during the time of his ministry. This son of a priest joins the prophetic ministry of Haggai as they encourage the governor of Judah, Zerubbabel, and the newly crowned priest king, Joshua, to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. The Persian Empire had allowed the Jews to come home, to return home, and they had permitted them to rebuild the wall and the temple, even though at this point in the story, the emperor Darius has been asked to make sure that they are not overstepping their permitted bounds. And as we read in chapter 4, verse 9, the foundation of the temple has already been laid. But in one sense, even though they've returned physically, they still need to return spiritually. And so the prophet communicates God's message. The theme is in chapter 1. We read it in verses 3 and 4. Return to me, and I will return to you. Do not be like your fathers, to whom the former prophets cried out. Return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. You see, their ancestors had served as examples of how not to respond to the God who had entered into a covenant relationship with them. 
But a few verses later in that same chapter, God will tell Zechariah that God will end the 70 years of exile. God will end his anger against Judah, and he will meet his people at home in Jerusalem because he is a God of mercy who wants his people's lives to overflow with prosperity. And so we read, the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. Some might wonder, how could it be said that God could love his people and be angry with them at the same time? But then you'd have to ask the same thing about that day when my mother called me home. The answer is that genuine love is a love that judges us and gets jealously angry because God's wrath isn't a contradiction of his love. God's wrath is an expression of his love. God loves us with such a righteous, jealous love that his love is expressed as anger when God knows that something is going to hurt us or others and will take us away from the life of obedience to which he calls us. God loves us so much that he wants us to experience the abundant life that he has created us to enjoy. So he's not indifferent toward evil in our lives or in our world. He even gave us commands as channel markers to keep us free and flourishing. I mean, what kind of God would God be if God overlooked evil in our lives? What kind of loving parent would a father or mother be who ignored the self-destructive behaviors of their children? The psychologist Rollo May once wrote that the opposite of love is not hate. The opposite of love is apathy. Actually, there is no greater hatred than apathy and indifference in the face of evil. God's wrath is meant to set us free from those second-rate gods that entrap us. And if God were indifferent about the evil and the sin that kills us, then God would not be God. See, the Jews had experienced 70 years of God's judgment in exile because sometimes, because sometimes God gets us back by luring us into a wilderness to the place where it's dry and desolate in life, into the darkness of doubt, abandonment, maybe deep disappointment. You know, the dark night of the soul, where God strips away all the false securities, purges us of our idols, so that in the stillness and barrenness of our lives, we can finally hear the gentle voice of the Lord gently speak to us, about good, how good God has been to us and about how all the good things he has in store for us for the rest of our lives. That's precisely the experience of the psalmist in Psalm 130. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you, so that you may be revered. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than those who watch for the morning, more than those who watch for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, 
For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is great power to redeem. It is he who will redeem Israel from all her iniquities. Now all of what Zechariah is saying has to be put into context. The same context into which you and I are baptized. Because God enters into a covenant relationship with his people. Something like a marriage vow. In fact, Israel is portrayed in the Old Testament as the bride of Yahweh, just as in the New Testament the church is portrayed as the bride of Jesus Christ. And so when the prophets like Zechariah rail against the sins of their fellow Jews, they're not so much focusing on the wrongs, the wrong things that have been done, so much as they are focusing on a covenant of love that has been broken. And here's the flip side of that. Despite our unfaithfulness, in the face of our infidelity, God will meet us, his people. He will not let us go. He, in his incredible love, God will even go searching for his unfaithful bride and woo her back, just as the prophet Hosea demonstrated in his prophetic ministry. That's amazing. So Zechariah makes it clear to his people, return home to the covenant God who has been angry with you, but who will now meet you with grace because you are still his chosen ones. But still the people complain. Yeah, Jerusalem's in ruins, God. The new temple is not as magnificent as the first one. We're just puppets dominated by a foreign empire, Persia. I mean, living in exile was better than this, God. Why rebuild this temple? And so Zechariah tells them, look, God is now up to something. Something that in the Apostle Paul's words, God has been planning since before the foundations of the world. Despite appearances, God is opening up a new chapter in his plan that will involve his re-chosen people if they will just cooperate with him. And though they couldn't see it at the time, Zechariah is looking way beyond even Israel's immediate future. In fact, crowning Joshua as the new priest and king, as we read in this excerpt from chapter 6, Joshua will not only be leading in the temple rebuilding for which the people will come from afar to lend their aid, but Joshua is also, he's kind of like one of those seat fillers at the Academy Awards. He's a, he's a stand-in for the one who will come in the future. The one who will come, another Joshua named Jesus, the priest and king, who will inaugurate the building of a temple that has no walls, the church, a temple that will embrace both Jews who are near and Gentiles who from, are from far off. That's the message that Zechariah will continue to unfold in his prophetic announcements. And so those who returned home to Jerusalem built a second temple, just as you and I are called home to Jesus to join in building the building of the temple called church and to build for the kingdom of God. Despite the appearances of what's going on in the world, that's what we're called to do.
And just as Zechariah relays the word to the governor and the priest that it will not happen by human might and by power, it will happen by the Spirit of God. The same Spirit who has equipped Jesus to make the deaf hear and the mute speak. So God's Spirit that came upon the church at Pentecost will continue to gift and empower the followers of Jesus to build for God's kingdom. You and, I, you and I may complain because it seems like our temple building work isn't doing much in this world. That it would be better to go back and disobediently play in the danger zone of a disassembled world. But then we would need to hear the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty-eight. My beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast. Be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. It'll all be conserved and used by God. It's like constructing a medieval cathedral that took a hundred years to build. Even though you don't know what your carefully stone-cut gargoyles are going to be there for, or where they're going to be placed in that finished cathedral. But you work at your assigned task for the kingdom so that one day in the future we will all gaze at the kingdom in its fullness and we will hear the architect announce, well done, thou good and faithful servants. And that's the invitation the Lord gives to return to the place where he will meet his chosen covenant people with mercy to build his house so that the cities will flourish. But first, you and I have to accept the invitation to come home to that place of mercy. Trevecca and I have a friend named Marion who lives in New Jersey. One of us will call from time to time just to check in with each other, and we hope to visit her next spring. At one point in our lives, whether she realized it or not, she became like a parent to Trevecca and me, as well as our friend and our fellow parishioner at church. But more than that, Marion's life has illustrated God's call for the sinner to come home from 70 years of exile and relish God's goodness. When we first met Marion, she had long been separated from her husband, whose unethical business dealings had been much of the reason for their separation. Still, Marion would never have considered divorce because she saw no biblical grounds for it in her situation. From her point of view, she had entered into a covenant relationship. She lived, and she still lives, very simply. She directed the Christian education at the church that we were part of, She took in people like a local prostitute one time that others would have written off. And she cheerfully and constantly still gives to others who are in need out of her modest means. She's the kind of person who years ago when our son was a rambunctious preschooler responded to his accidental spilling of tea on her white carpet. Now every time I look at that stain... I'll be reminded of my precious Ryan. 
Years ago, after we moved away from New Jersey, uh, Marion's estranged husband legally divorced her and, without her knowledge, married a much younger woman. Shortly after that, Marion's former husband discovered that he had cancer. His new wife left him. But like Israel's God, who would come to us in the person of Jesus Christ, Marion did not bind her husband to his past. Like Jesus, she did not insist that he deserve what he was going to get. Like Jesus, she took him in. She nursed him in her home until he died. He left Marion with nothing. What he had left, his wife, his young wife had taken. He left Marion with nothing except two big slobbering dogs that she continued to lovingly care for at about the same time that she took in her aging mother. And through it all, with a hacking cough and an aching back, she continues to be the most genuinely cheerful and hopeful Christian we've ever met. You know, Philip Yancey once wrote this, Nothing you do will make God love you more. Nothing you do will make God love you less. No matter how unfaithful we've been or how worthless we feel, God's love will not give up on us, just as an angry Yahweh did not give up on Israel. Whether he's calling our name in judgment, luring us into the desert, or even when we don't deserve to have our name called, God is calling us home, just as Marion called her husband home. I think it's God's way of being our GPS when we're headed in the wrong direction, gently but firmly saying to us, recalculating, recalculating. Sometimes a song gets into our head, you know, when you can't get it out. I'm going to do that to you this morning. I hope it gets into your head when you give some thought to the Word of God that's been heard, read, and preached. And hopefully it will still be in your head during Eucharist when you come forward to what is in one sense an altar call to receive Jesus literally into your embodied life. This song, this song is an old hymn that's been recorded dozens of times, and I think it's a paraphrase of Zechariah's opening chapter. And maybe it'll help us to meditate on God's word to us today.